welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's hard to imagine that we spent a whole presidential campaign talking about jobs and outsourcing and immigration, when the fact is that all of that is yesterday's news. The real impact on future jobs, income, and how we conduct our lives is not coming from Mexico or China, but from Silicon Valley and from the seven-ounce rectangular piece of glass in your back pocket. Just as we watched years ago the disruption of the music business, the travel business, and the retail business, today disruptors like Brian Chesky and Travis Kalanick have disrupted transportation and hospitality in ways that no one could have imagined as recently as just eight years ago. But disruption has a price for the disruptor, for society, and for those that stand in the way and defend the status quo. When that happens, it's always a good story. And that's the story that my guest Brad Stone tells in his new book, The Upstarts. Brad Stone is the author of the best-selling The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos in the Age of Amazon. He's the senior executive editor for technology at Bloomberg News, and he hosts the weekly Bloomberg podcast, Decrypted. It is my pleasure to welcome Brad Stone back to this program to talk about The Upstarts, how Uber, Airbnb and the killer companies of the new Silicon Valley are changing the world. Brad Stone, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things that certainly is remarkable about this story is the compression of time, the fact that these two companies that are really at the center of what you write about in, in the upstarts didn't exist seven, eight years ago. It was remarkable to me because it seems like these things have been around forever, and yet they've really uh, they've really changed our world in an instant. And I think the epiphany for me, you know, I was really worried as I set out to write this book that these it would feel like two separate books because I was following home sharing and ride sharing, Uber and Airbnb, and to some extent Lyft and some other companies that I talk about in the book. And the epiphany was when both sets of founders said that they were at the inauguration of President Obama. This is back in um, two. 2009, January 2009, pretty anonymously, like neither business had taken off. Uber didn't even exist yet, and there they, there they both were anonymously in the crowd that day. When you look at these two guys, Brian Chesky and, and Travis Kalanick, in some ways, are they the successors with respect to technology in Silicon Valley to people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, they haven't proven themselves out at that level yet, um, but they certainly are the the kind of heirs to that uh, kind of success. There's a major difference, though, and it also took me a while to realize this. The the tech the tech uh, uh, kingpins of the past were you know were kind of geeky. They weren't uh, Jobs is an exception, but Gates. I'm thinking Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, not great communicators, certainly not uh, good public speakers, um, and very inwardly focused on their businesses as they were allowed to be. In fact, you know a lot of those CEOs really didn't engage, engage in politics or regulation uh, to any significant extent until much further into their business careers. And Chesky at Airbnb and Kalanick at Uber and their counterparts in these other kind of sharing economy, so-called sharing economy companies, they, they were much different. They had to be charismatic communicators. They had to be politicians because as soon as they have both, both companies emerge, you know, 2010 San Francisco, they run headlong into, into all of these regulatory problems. And they had, to, they had to fight that. They had to explain their, their points of view. And then they had to marshal the support, their supporters in the form of their customers, people who love their products to go fight these battles. So, you know, these companies required a much different kind of CEO than the tech companies of the past. How much historical context did either of them bring to to the challenges they faced 
with respect to the disruption that took place in the music business or disruption that has taken place historically in other businesses? Yeah, both both CEOs had a frame of reference. Travis Kalanick had spent about 15 years pretty unsuccessfully running other technology companies. And his first startup was called Scour. And it was kind of a Napster equivalent in the late 90s. And so he had fought in the in the kind of first generation of online music wars. The company had actually been sued out of existence by the big music uh, studios and Hollywood studios. And so he, he saw he saw what that kind of disruption had done to the music business and how hard the incumbents were ready to fight. Airbnb was a little bit different. Um, the founders, two of the founders, came from a design school, the Rhode Island School of Design. So, you know, they're... they're you know, ideals were, you know, like the Eames brothers and, right. and, and things. And to some extent, they idolized Steve Jobs. But they also came, it, they came up at a time where Mark Zuckerberg was beginning to be famous. And I know that Brian Chesky idolized Zuckerberg and saw him as, as kind of a model. Talk a little bit about the way in which, over the years, they both learned from each other. Because one, Chesky in particular, was so much better at public relations. It's funny. They again back to my worry that this this would be two separate books. It really wasn't. And and one thing that made you know the upsets kind of gel was the fact that Chesky at Airbnb and Kalanick at Uber had a kind of friendship, and they would meet uh, regularly, have dinner, and they did learn from each other. Uh, you know, there were very few people you know that were going through the 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 kind of amazing experience they were going through in the fights, and so they had a frame of reference for each other. And it's funny because they would come back from these meetings, and and Travis would say. You know, look, talking to Brian, we have to be nicer because Airbnb had this, you know, reputation as a kinder brand. And Chesky would come back and say, we have to be, we have to be tougher because Uber, you know, was taking a harder line with cities and all of its fights. Um, the funny thing that I sort of concluded is, although their reputations are quite different, and Airbnb has a much softer brand, and pe- people, you know, d- d- you know, t- tend to have strong feelings about Uber one way or another. The, the CEOs weren't all that different from each other. Um, you know, they, they both in, in some ways took a pretty hard line uh, in cities where their services were just illegal. Like Airbnb in some cities, in New York is the best example, was really from the very beginning illegal. And even though we think of Airbnb as, as having a friendlier brand and being, you know, being co- more cooperative with cities, they, they really just they just launched in New York, and they grew quietly, and they, they tried to get big so they could change the law. So uh, these, these two guys weren't as different as maybe they profess. How much did either of them realize what the obstacles, what the political and legal obstacles would be in both their businesses when they started out? You know, very. I think they had very little idea. Other than that, skeptical investors kept telling them. So, you know, they. It, the, it's always funny in these stories, and that happened in my last book too on Amazon. That you go and you talk to everyone who didn't see the opportunity. You know, the so-called venture capitalists who are supposed to be able to predict the future, and they just didn't see it at all. And in the case of Uber, uh, you know, there were some very well-respected venture capitalists in, in the Bay Area who invest in everything. Like they never say no, and they said no to Uber because. You know, they saw it would be a fight in every city. And the same thing with Airbnb. A lot of investors said, well, you know, it's, it doesn't look like it's legal in New York or, or Paris. And, and by the way, somebody could end up dying in an Airbnb and then you'd have a real problem. So I, I don't think the CEOs really knew what they were in for. Certainly not the wave after wave of political attacks. But there were investors who were presciently saying, you know, this, this is going to be a battle unlike all these other tech companies. And talk a little bit about the passion and the belief in what they were doing that really kept them go both going through all of that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, that's an ingredient that you need for any tech company. And, you know, a lot of people said to Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia and, and Nate Blacharsik, the founders of Airbnb, like, why would anybody want to do this? This sounds like a horrible night's sleep and you're, you know, and there might be a stranger down the hall. And, you know, they just believed, you know, they saw, first of all, they were hosts themselves. So they saw that it could create a kind of bonding experience of the traveler or a more authentic travel experience for, for a tourist. And, you know, and, and then they, they saw that there were other companies trying it and no one had quite got it, you know, got it right. And, you know, and they persevered through some really incredible, incredible times. Like they, they were the first year, it basically went nowhere. They kept on launching the company and, and, and they even made breakfast cereal at one point to kind of promote it. Um, and, and so, you know, they believed it's, it's, you know, it's a remarkable story. And Uber is a little bit the same way. I mean, Travis Kalanick was not the first CEO. He came in a couple of months into it. And it was only, it was only when the taxi drivers in San Francisco and the, and the city's tax, taxi regulatory commission started making a fuss that he saw that this thing was having traction. It was almost like if it was, if it was getting big enough that there was opposition that, that Uber must be onto something. So that was a great kind of canary in the coal mine that this thing was making a difference for people and kind of upsetting the apple cart. And how did each envision their respective companies in terms of what the problem was and what the problem they were trying to solve? You know, it's funny, both, both really did did kind of evolve um, in the way that almost all tech companies did. Uber started out, some people might remember, as just a luxury car service. So it was a high-end limo service for the first couple of years. And the, and, you know, the, the really sort of illuminating story is that they never really saw the idea of, of changing transportation or replacing cars. Um, it was high-end, and then a company called Lyft and a company called Sidecar came around in California with the idea of lowering the price for these kinds of uh, cars by letting anybody, not just a licensed taxi, drive them and, and use their own car. And, and the folks at Uber thought this was illegal for the first couple of months and actually tried to get it shut down. And it was only until California didn't shut it down that they went and launched UberX, which is really the thing that has changed the world because it's lowering the price of, uh, of, the, of taxis, essentially, um, you know, to make it competitive with, uh, with owning a car. And so, you know, the funny thing is, like, I don't know that the vision was there until Uber's competitors pointed it out for them. Mm-hmm. You know, at Airbnb, you know, it, it, it did sort of start with this idea of kind of couch surfing, you know, that, that like, you know, the, the, the name was originally Air Bed and Breakfast. So the idea was, you, you know, you throw a couple of air beds down and, and almost like do a high-end youth hostel. And then that really expanded to this idea of bringing vacation rentals, but into cities. That's what like HomeAway or VRBO or, you know, all these other companies that had done this before, but they didn't get. And so in both cases, I think the companies really stumbled on to their major, marketing opportun- major market opportunities. One of the things that made them both successful, it seems, and and able to weather some of the legal and political storms is that they were able to achieve pretty quickly a certain degree of mass so that they were a certain number of users that became their defenders. Right. I call that Travis's law in the book because Kalanick at one point in a battle in D.C. postulated that uh, you know, that if you have a, a service or a product that's measurably better than the status quo and the politicians are, are, are responsible, uh, accountable to the, to the people, uh, you know, to their constituents, then they will have no choice but to make that, 
you know, superior service legal. And we saw that again and again, where, where Uber basically kind of activated its user base in a city and organized email writing campaigns and protests and things like that to, you know, to get a law changed or to pass a law that was favorable. And, you know, and the, and the fact is, is that, you know, a lot of places, you know, the yellow cab industry hadn't really endeared itself, uh, you know, to the population. Like I, I live in San Francisco and, you know, it was a you know, great point of uh, common frustration that the city's taxis were not all that good for many years. And so, look, uh, you know, people have sympathy, I think, for the medallion owner or the, you know, the fleet owner whose business took a hit. But the fact is that, you know, they weren't serving people all that well. And Uber, love it or hate it, gave you an alternative. And also, let's put Lyft and all the other ride-sharing companies in there, gave you an alternative that was better. Now, Airbnb has had a little less success in kind of marshalling its user base, and I think that's partly because, you know, people, you know, Airbnb, you know, travelers, you know, they're, you, you might use Airbnb in New York, but you don't live in, you know, if you're a traveler, you don't live in New York. And so if you want to support it in New York, you're not necessarily going to be there when they hold the protest. So a little set, a bit of a different set of issues for both companies. But, you know, the fact is, is that we just saw a Super Bowl ad from Airbnb. You know, they try to, you know, they, they both companies are trying to sort of marshal their political support, um, you know, because they, they are still battling to change the law in their favor. Do they both consider their efforts to change the law and to continue the business a success at this point? Do, do they feel that they've reached critical mass on this? I think Uber has. You know, there are pockets where it's not legal. Austin, Texas is one place. Uh, Uber or Lyft don't exist in Vancouver, Canada. But by and large, that first wave of regulatory battles in the U.S. and North America, they've won. There's still some resistance to the idea of pure ride-sharing uh, in, in Europe and, and places in Asia. Um, but I would say yes. I'd say, say, say kind of Uber's in the clear. They'll have another set of regulatory fights when it comes to uh, self-driving cars, right. which they're working on. Airbnb is different. Airbnb you know, grew a little quietly f- for a lot of city regulators and legislators, and now places are kind of wondering, well, do we want our neighborhoods turned into tourist districts? And so you're seeing a, a big pushback in places like San Francisco, parts of L.A., uh, New York State, and then little, you know, little kind of, you know, nice residential communities, Laguna Beach in, in Southern California, you know, places that are very concerned about maintaining the character of their community. They're worried about housing prices. They're worried about rents. And so there's a little bit more pushback on Airbnb, and that's why they've been making a big investment in their political arm recently and doing things like the Super Bowl ad because right. they're they're still they're still in a fight for their for their life. I mean it's not life or death because you know there are plenty of places that allow Airbnb, but it is crucial in some of their biggest markets their supply is under attack. It is interesting that the pushback to Airbnb has come from communities exactly as you, as you've talked about and less so at least appearing on the surface less so from the hotel industry. Not quite true because the the, the hotel industry and the hotel workers unions are out there agitating. You can be sure of it, perhaps behind the scenes. But, you know, there are all sorts of consortiums that have bought advertisements that are very active in some of these political battles. And look, I mean, Airbnb has warped the fabric of the of the travel industry. You know, we see things like Marriott buying Starwood and Expedia buying HomeAway mm-hmm. in large part because I think they see this disruptor in their midst. Um, and also, let's let's 
let's point out, raising money at extraordinary Silicon Valley valuations. You know, Airbnb is worth $30 billion, almost as much as Marriott Starwood right now. So, um, you know, I think, I think they're concerned. I think they're mobilizing, you know, and that's a, you know, that's a, that's an industry with a lot of political support, deep political connections, and they're, you can be certain they're leveraging them in a way that I think the taxi companies with Uber never really could because that was more of a decentralized industry. Also, the taxi industry had a lot of negative PR going for it going in. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but, but like, I, 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 in the research, I was surprised that every city had a kind of taxi commissioner that had, you know, wrapped themselves into contortions over the years trying to satisfy the taxi industry. Like, there was a lot of regulatory capture. But, yeah, but yeah when, it, when it came to, like, you know, what, what people were going to support, going back to Travis's law, you know, they they most most cities embrace the superior alternative. To what extent has Airbnb spawned imitators? It seems like there's less competition or less new competition, disruptive competition in that market than there is in, in Uber's business. Yeah, it's true. And and there were imitators early on, and I talk about it in the book. Uh, there there were, uh, you know, we, we call them cloners in the industry. Um, and they were out in force when they saw Airbnb success. There's a, a group of brothers in Europe called the Samwars, and they created an Airbnb clone. But the thing about Airbnb is it really was, it, it was a sort of network that, um, that spanned borders because if you were in the in the U.S. and you wanted you know and you're an Airbnb user when you went to Europe you naturally used Airbnb and vice versa and so these regional you know competitors never really took on because you know you had Airbnb had this momentum as a global network in fact it's even doing a pretty good job in China despite the fact that there as as usual there are some Chinese Airbnb competitors um, they do well with Chinese citizens you know traveling in China but again you know when Chinese people want to come to America or vice versa, they're going to use Airbnb. I mean, the difference is Uber was never really a global network. Uber, Uber is a network that primarily is used by people in cities moving within them, within cities. And so that's why it's been a tougher road for them, why they have to kind of win their battle city by city, and why in some places where they're illegal, like, like Austin, you've had local competitors come in, you know, obey the local ordinances and do every bit as well as Uber's been able to do. So much, much tougher competitive grid for Uber than for Airbnb. It is also interesting that they, I guess, cloak themselves in this, this patino when it's valuable of being technology companies. I mean, you can certainly argue that what Uber does, what Airbnb does, are not inherently technology, and yet they are perceived as technology companies, and they use that to their advantage in so many respects. I think I think they they're less obviously technology companies, but I don't think we can underestimate the technology that's involved, both from facilitating global payments uh, to creating those trust mechanisms so that, that essentially allow strangers to do business together. And then in the case of Uber, you know, tremendous technology that's required to track cars and, you know, and, and make the app work and, you know, and facilitate such a seamless payment when you get out without, without, without opening your wallet. But I mean, it's true that, you know, they're, they're different kinds of technology companies. I mean, they, they devote vast resources to policy and lobbying in a way that, you know, Amazon or Google or Facebook never really had to do in their early days. So they're a little bit more, I agree, they're a little bit more difficult to, to classify. And they do seek uh, the halo, the glow of the halo that's bestowed upon Silicon Valley companies when it is valuable to them. 
One of the things, and you've touched on this in, in a couple of respects, particularly with regard to Uber, how they've had to pivot at certain points and, and transform themselves. What's ahead in your view in terms of the way they might continue to change and continue to transform, both of these companies? Yeah, yeah Jeff, that's a great point because for Uber, there is a, there is a, there is a crisis somewhere in its future, and that is the emergence of driverless cars. Because if, if Google or GM or Ford or, you know, one of the Chinese companies like, uh, you know, like Didi figure out driverless car technology first, Uber's got a, a major problem because, you know, future, futurists do predict that one day we will stop driving, and that could be in five years or it could be in 20 years. But the safety benefits for having computers driver cars, as much as maybe we, we feel uncomfortable or don't believe it, they'll be hard to avoid. So, you know, so Uber has to, has to figure that out and has to be competitive with it. Otherwise, really the whole business is, is at risk. Uh, Airbnb, I think, it has, has more of a traditional dilemma, which is, you know, they have to figure out new things to do. They have to figure out a second act. We may be reaching a point where there's just some people that aren't going to throw in with, uh, you know, w- with the, the in-law apartment of somebody else's home, you know, that they will be seeking a more conventional hotel. And so we've seen Airbnb try to expand into other kinds of travel experiences, like, like, giving you things to do on your trip or helping you book a flight. They need, you know, the, so they launched something this year called, or actually last summer called Trips and Experiences. And they want to branch out as, as every company does and figure out what their second and third acts are. And certainly with respect to, to Airbnb, there's a generational component. And as that generation that has adopted Airbnb begins to age and have kids and families and everything else, that's going to have an impact, it seems, on their business. You know, I I thought that too. Like, do, do is it only young folks doing Airbnb? But um, you know, it's surprisingly that there. And I've I've seen some numbers that uh, you know there are retirees who embrace it. You know, mm-hmm. as a way to make extra money by renting out their own homes when they travel, or or simply as a way to travel and have more authentic experiences. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's funny. That's a one company that's kind of to use the horrible business phrase crossed across the chasm mm-hmm. has gotten a little bit more mainstream than we might uh, expect. Although I have to say, uh, you know, that said, like I've encountered plenty, plenty of folks, uh, uh, you know, my age and, and older who, you know, who kind of recoil at the idea of Airbnb. So clearly it's not for everyone, but I do think it's found some mainstream ex- acceptance as has Uber. You know, it's funny as to where we started up the conversation eight years ago, you know, these were all things our mothers told us never to do, get into, get into a stranger's car or walk into a stranger's house. And yet for some reason now we're all happily doing it. And, and how does Silicon Valley at large, look at the success of Uber and the success of Airbnb, the disruption that they've caused, the travails that they've gone through. How is that viewed in the Silicon Valley business world? Well, well, with a lot of envy and jealousy and probably admiration because, you know, together $99 billion in market capitalization, like the, the, the defining success stories of this wave. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I'd have to say there's probably in some quarters a little bit of um, ambivalence is maybe the right word about, about how they, they've grown. 
you know, whether they really grew ethically, whether they obeyed the laws or really just kind of broke them, you know, for their own purpose. And, and um, you know, and, and the impact they're having, you know, is Uber adding to traffic or, or subtracting from it? Is Airbnb giving us new travel opportunities or just taking homes off the market? And these are things, you know, this is all things I, I discuss in the upstarts um, and, and try to, you know, get to the answers and, and kind of conclude we're going to have to see them and whether they can fulfill their promise. I mean, Uber does say it can have a measurable impact on traffic. I don't think we've seen it yet. I just had a pretty long commute. Um, and, and Airbnb thinks that, you know, it can create a kind of micro economy that replaces, you know, boring state old hotels, creates new kinds of entrepreneurship. So I, I do think there are questions. We've seen them. We've seen it recently around all the stuff around you know, Travis being on Trump's business, uh, President Trump's business council, you know, and protests at Uber headquarters. So I think there's not a complete certainty yet that these companies are great corporate citizens, and we'll have to see. The other aspect of it is the inherent nature of disruption itself and the way, it, one, it has to break the laws, perhaps in order to disrupt, or the way the laws have to change given the reality of 21st century life. That's a great point, because we can, we can call these companies lawbreakers. We can say they grew without regard uh, for you know, incumbent industries or people's professions. But it's also true that a lot of the laws that govern the taxi industry or the hotel industry were made in a different age. And you know, we call them an- analog laws. Like, you know, was it really necessary for everyone, to, you know, any taxi driver, to buy a high-priced medallion? I mean, it, it was 100 years ago, uh, but you know, Uber is also now created this this new kind of temporary employment for people that just want to fill a gap in their day. So, I, you know, I think both these companies taught regulators, you know, taught cities and lawmakers uh, that they need to be more responsible and more uh, aware of, of digital change. And, you know, and, and you know, and to update the co- the code. And, and so I think both these companies kind of ushered in an, a new age uh, of receptiveness among lawmakers. I think that's one thing that we can point to and say they probably had a pretty good impact. Brad Stone, the book is The Upstarts, how Uber, Airbnb, and the killer companies of the new Silicon Valley are changing the world. Brad, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it. Thank you.